So 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Thank you very much, Esme, for that reading. And uh, let me add my welcome to Nathan's. It's great to see you. Uh, You're very, very welcome, particularly if you're coming back after a break or if you're here for the first time. And uh, as Nathan's already said, uh, we hope you feel very welcome. We hope this is the first of many, many uh, Sundays with us. Uh, Well, do uh, please keep that passage open and uh, you'll find an outline on the inside of this sheet, which I hope will uh, be helpful as we make our way through uh, this passage. But do uh, please keep it open. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 to 7. Well, the question I get asked at pastors' conferences sometimes is on the surface a simple one, um, but actually one of the hardest to answer. And to be clear, it's not just me who gets asked this question. Uh, Whenever church leaders of every stripe get together, uh, we all seem to ask each other this question. Here is the question. How are things going at Moreland's? As I say, at one level... It's a simple enough question. It's really just one of those things you talk about as you queue up for coffee in the break between sessions. But for the church leader, there are some pitfalls in answering this question. You try it sometime. Try asking a church leader, a pastor, how are things going at their church? And I can guarantee there'll be this kind of momentary hesitation, a kind of rabbit-in-the-headlights look as they begin to answer. Well, let me tell you why they hesitate. Let me tell you what we're thinking at that moment. You see, there's a, there's, a, there's a trick here. There are some pitfalls to fall into. On the one hand, if I answer everything is just fantastic, thank you, that might just sound boastful or proud or complacent. Certainly un-British, isn't it, to talk like that? Or it might be discouraging to the other person who's asked you the question. Maybe things are struggling at their church. And everything is just fantastic cannot be true. However wonderful you think your church is, no church is perfect. On the other hand, if I play down the good stuff that is happening and major on all the frustrations and discouragements that are a regular part, a normal part of church leadership, that might sound as if I'm whinging. Or even worse, that I'm belittling the work of God and of his people. After all, this is his church. It's not my church. It's his work. 
which he does through the ministry of every member of the church, not just the leader. So you can see the problem in answering the question, can't you? On the one hand, don't want to be boastful. On the one hand, don't want to whinge. Well, how would you answer the question? How are things going at Moreland's? Well, I guess it depends, doesn't it, on what the benchmark is for whether church is going well or badly. I mean, how do you judge it? How do you work out whether things are going well or badly in a church? Is it the numbers of members or people in the pews? Is it about how friendly people are as you walk through the door? Is it about how many baptisms we've had? Or the number of people in growth groups or teams? Or the state of our giving, the state of our bank balance? Or how uplifting the music? It could be any of these things, couldn't it? It's tricky, isn't it? Because all of those things I've just mentioned are probably part of the picture of what make for a healthy church, but none of them are going to tell you much at all on their own. Is there a more objective way of answering the question, a more biblical way? By which I mean, is there a way of working out what God thinks about how things are going at Moorlands? What is God's benchmark for the healthy church? Well, come with me to the letter of New, uh, New Testament letter of 1 Timothy, which we're going to be studying for the next 11 weeks. This is a great place to see what God wants and expects from his church here at Moorlands and any other church that you happen to find yourself part of. One more thought before we launch in. Why does it matter? See, it matters to the pastor in the coffee queue. They've got a good answer, doesn't it? But why does it really matter? Well, we're going to see that it matters because the salvation of the world depends on it. It turns out that the question, how are things going at Moorlands, actually matters to every person who walks through that door, to every person in this neighborhood, potentially to every person in this city. Well, let's get down to work then. The letter opens with a fairly standard New Testament greeting in verses 1 and 2, which, as you'll see, tells us who the letter is from and who it is for. Have a look at it again with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That greeting tells us who the letter is from and who it is for. It is from Paul to Timothy. Now, if we know anything about Paul and Timothy and their relationship with each other, that opening should tune our ears to listen very carefully. Why? Because here is Paul, the apostle, the great apostle to the Gentiles, writing, he says, notice, by the command of God. In other words, as Nathan has already reminded us this morning, as we open this letter, as we read these words, we are hearing the very words of God, the words of our creator. And Paul, by the command of God, is writing to Timothy, his very close friend and colleague. You can see the, the way their friendship began in Acts chapter 16, where Paul recruited Timothy deliberately to be a kind of long-term apprentice or trainee and eventually co-worker for the gospel. Paul, the older man, had trained Timothy, the younger man, over the course of many years 
They had traveled many miles together around the Mediterranean. They had co-authored seven letters, planted several churches, and been through a great deal of suffering together too. Which is why, notice, he calls him in verse 2, my true son in the faith. Timothy is not Paul's biological son, but his spiritual son. Timothy is a kind of a multiplication of Paul. He's a mini version of the Apostle Paul. He's a kind of extension of himself, just as a biological son would be. I was sitting behind the Blaine family, in front of the Blaine family, and I was looking at Andy Blaine and his four sons, four little miniature Andys. Well, Timothy is like that, isn't he? He's a son of Paul spiritually because he's trained him. And therefore, here is a man in whom Paul has complete confidence to pass on this responsibility for leading the church, which you'll see in verse 3 is the church in Ephesus. So that introduction alone should have kind of whet our appetite a little bit for what we're going to hear. The very least we should expect is a letter that's going to train younger men how to lead churches from the mind of the great apostle who is speaking the words of God. And I think you'll have to agree that that alone is worth hearing because our world needs young men to lead churches. Our world needs men to teach the Bible and to lead churches. That alone is going to be worth hearing. But we're going to get so much more than that because this is both a personal letter from a father and friend and a public letter from the Apostle Paul. It is intended to be heard by Timothy, yes, but it's intended to be heard by the church in Ephesus and by us. Now, how do we know this? Well, there's a couple of clues, three clues. One is this opening greeting where you'll notice he greets Paul with the intimacy of a father and the formality of an apostle. It would be like me writing to my son and signing off a letter, love dad, brackets, senior pastor. You can see that's a bit strange, isn't it? But that's what Paul is doing here. Another clue, if you flip over to 2 verse 7, is his firm profession of authenticity in that verse. I tell you the truth, he says, I'm not lying. Which would be strange if, if, if this was a letter just for Timothy's eyes only. And finally, in 6 verse 20, it doesn't really come across in the English, but the plural of that final greeting, grace be with you, is, uh, sorry, the, the, the word grace be with you is in the plural in 620. And so the letter addressed to Timothy from Paul is actually for the church to listen into. In fact, John Calvin, in his introduction to his commentary, says, in my view, this epistle was written more for the sake of others than for Timothy himself. And those who carefully consider the matter will agree with me. Well, you can't really argue with that, can you? So that's who the letter is from and who it is for. But what is the letter about? Well, the opening verses show us two things that God is going to teach us in this letter. And you'll see those on the outline. Firstly, God's world and how he intends to save it. Now, if you have had a chance to read through the letter, which I hope you have, and if you haven't, I hope you will do in the week ahead, you'll see that it covers a, a diversity of themes that are apparently unrelated at first sight. So we're going to pray for secular authorities, and then we're going to think about how women should dress. Praying for the king, how women should dress. We're going to think about what makes a suitable leader. We're going to think about Timothy's own role, and we're going to be thinking about feeding 
widows and the vulnerable. We're going to be thinking about financial generosity and we're going to be thinking about how to treat creation. So you can see the kind of the, the breadth, the diversity of things that Paul is going to talk about. And the challenge for us as we embark on the series and the challenge for any reader of any New Testament book is to try and understand, isn't it, what unites those things together. Praying for kings, women dressing, financial generosity, feeding widows. What is it that, that brings those things together in this one letter? Is it just a few things Paul had on his mind or is there something more to it? In other words, what is the beating heart of this letter? What is the theme tune? What is this letter really about that we can get hold of? Well, that is the challenge for us, and I think that we'll find it if we see three things, which I've put on the sheet. We need to see, firstly, three major concerns, two key phrases, and one pivotal statement. And so for the next few minutes, we're going to sort of try and get the big picture and hone down on what really this letter is about. Well, as you read through the letter, you'll notice three major concerns, which Paul mentions repeatedly. This is Paul banging his drum. This is the kind of the rhythm section of the band. This is what he's on about. Three major concerns almost in every chapter. These are the truth that is to be guarded, the church that is to be rightly ordered, and the man, Timothy himself, in this case the gospel worker, who is to keep watch over himself in order to ensure that the truth is ordered and the, uh, the church is ordered and the truth guarded. So the church, the truth, and the man. Those are Paul's three concerns in the letter. And as we go through, we'll see them again and again. But how are those concerns connected? Well, that brings us to two key phrases. The first key phrase is there right in the opening line. Notice that Paul introduces God as God our Savior. It's easy to skim over. If you're a believer this morning, you already know that God saves. But it's actually a very unusual phrase. It's unusual in the New Testament. It's unique, in fact, to this group of letters known as the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Nowhere else in the Bible does that phrase occur, God our Saviour. It occurs three times in Timothy, 1 in 1, one. then you'll see it again in 2 verse 3, if you just flip over the page, God our Saviour. He wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then again in 4 verse 10, and for this we labor and strive, but we've put our hope in the living God who is saviour of all men and especially of those who believe. Now I want us to consider just how revolutionary this idea of God our saviour is. It was certainly revolutionary back then in the first century. Remember this is the Greek city of Ephesus and the people of Ephesus worshipped a multitude of gods like the god Artemis, the goddess of the Ephesians, the famous fertility goddess whose statue was the pride and joy of the city. So in Lancaster, if you know Lancaster, you'll know that we've got the Astor Memorial. It sort of sits up above the city, you see it from a distance, it's almost the symbol of the city and it's become the symbol of our church. Well, in Ephesus, the equivalent was the statue of Artemis of the Ephesians. If you came to Ephesus as a tourist, which you may do, you would bow down and worship at the statue. You would ask the goddess for fertility, for prosperity, for healing, for good crops, whatever it was you needed. And gods like this needed serving with all kinds of offerings. 
keeping on board with various superstitious rituals. It was a kind of mutual back-scratching arrangement. That was the Greek religion. You would never dream of describing those gods as saving gods. Of course not. They weren't out to save you. They were out to be served by you. But Paul's God, the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ, does not need anything from men and women, nor does he owe them anything. He is the creator of the world. He's the creator of the universe. He needs nothing. And there's nothing that we can give him. He is completely self-sufficient. And he doesn't need serving. He doesn't need us to go and worship at his statue. He doesn't need feeding or keeping happy or keeping on board with superstition. He doesn't need his ego stroking. He is absolutely self-sufficient. But from that position of utter self-sufficiency, the God of the Bible is willing to bend down and graciously help those who cannot give anything back. Not only to help them, but to save them, to rescue them for all eternity. He is a God who saves. Well, it was revolutionary in the first century, but I want to suggest it's revolutionary now. I was thinking this week about how often we human beings wish to destroy each other, whether it's in violent ways or non-violent ways whether it's Boris's political career or Djokovic's chances of playing in the Australian Open or the other team members in The Apprentice or that child in the playground whose self-worth is destroyed by the bully or that colleague whose prospects are being destroyed by the other members of the team. We are not good at saving each other, but we are good at destroying. That's what we do. And so how amazing it is to find a God who doesn't want to destroy us, who doesn't want to put us down. He wants to save us. He wants to lift us up. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to live, not die. He wants to save you from that ultimate failure and humiliation of standing before his judgment seat on the last day, full of guilt and regret that you never treated him as God. And as we're going to see as we go through the letter, he is very proactive about salvation. He is not like the statue of Artemis of the Ephesians, just sitting there waiting to be worshipped. He is proactive. He is a God on a mission. He has actually sent his son Jesus into the world as the great missionary, who we read in Mark 10, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, can I just say, if you're new to church in the Bible this morning, I hope that's something you will take away and think about, that God's desire is that you might be saved for eternity. He's not waiting for you to come and serve him. He has come into the world to save you. But what this means is that part of the backbone of the letter if we could sort of imagine the letter as a skeleton, and here is the sort of the, the backbone of the letter. The backbone is this weighty idea, this wonderful idea that God saves. It's going to colour everything the apostle has to say. And Paul's aim for the church in Ephesus is that they share God's desire for the salvation of others, and they join him in his mission to save the world. That's the first key phrase. But notice the second key phrase. It's also easy to miss, but it's very, very significant. 
And it's that little phrase in verse 4 which is translated God's work. Now that word work, and uh, you may read a different version of the Bible, you'll see a slightly different word, but the word translated work is a special word in the Bible. And it's probably most accurately translated stewardship, which refers to the management of a family or household or a state or even a nation. It's actually, if you're interested, the word from which we get the English word, economics, stewardship. And it's a word, although we think about economics as a kind of a government word, it's a word that is actually rooted in the home, in household management, and ensuring order within the household. So if at some point during the week you're writing shopping lists, or giving out pocket money, or dealing with bank accounts, or sorting out homework, or putting food on the table, you're doing stewardship. You're running the home, you're ensuring order in your household. Joseph, for example, in the book of Genesis, was Potiphar's steward. He was in charge of the household. He took responsibility for the running of Potiphar's household and estate and welfare and order. That is the word. Well, what does Paul mean when he talks about God's stewardship? In Paul's letters, it's actually a major idea. It's a major metaphor of God's rule or oversight of the whole world. See, where is God's home? I've talked about the stewardship of our homes, but where is God's home? Well, we might say, well, God's home is in heaven. But the Bible tells us God is making the world his home. He is bringing history to a point where he can live in the world with us, just as it was back in the Garden of Eden. And so, for example, in Ephesians 1 verse 10, Ephesians 1 verse 10, Paul says that God's stewardship is his plan for the fullness of time that all things will be united in Christ, things in heaven and on earth. So this idea of stewardship, God's work, is a very big idea in Paul. It is nothing less than God's plan to bring order into his world so this world can become God's home. God is working through history, to turn this disordered, contaminated world into his perfect home. It's like a, a kind of a major home renovation, if you like, but of the whole world. And this, again, colours everything Paul says in the letter. For example, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to come to that passage which talks about women dressing in a particular way, behaving in a particular way, men behaving in a particular way that is obviously controversial in our culture. And Paul is going to say that men and women are different and we have to behave in particular appropriate ways. And when we come to passages like that, we're going to see that they must be read in that context. God is ordering this world, stewarding this world, bringing the order of creation to bear on the whole world. Three concerns, church, the truth, the man, Two key words, God is saviour, God is bringing order to his world through stewardship. And the third thing, and this is where we really come to the crux of the letter, where is that order to be seen? Where do you glimpse it now? Because I've talked about it, haven't I? This, this idea that God is bringing order to his world, that he's renovating the world so it can be his home. But what's the evidence for that? Where can you get a taste for it? Well, 
there is one pivotal statement, one central statement, which we need to look at. Now, it's common practice when writing a letter, or I guess more these days, an email, to state your purpose at the beginning, isn't it? Dear sir, I'm writing to inform you. Dear Trevor, I'm writing to thank you. Dear Mrs. Smith, I'm writing to apply for. But Paul puts his purpose statement, his reason for writing, right in the centre of the letter, slap bang in the middle. Have a look at it with me in 3.14 to 16. 3.14 to 16, right in the middle of the letter. 3.14, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He, that is Jesus, appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Verse 16 is a wonderful, cryptic, poetic summary of the plan of God being fulfilled in Christ. The coming of Christ into the world, the declaration of the gospel to the nations, so people might believe his victory and present rule. We'll spend a fair bit of time on that in a few weeks' time. But where does the world go if it wants to see that plan of God in action now? We'll look at verse 15. The world is to look to the church of the living God, which he calls the pillar and foundation of the truth. It's important to note that he is not here talking, Paul is never talking really, when he says the word church, of some vague global collection of Christians. He's certainly not talking of some kind of institutional denomination, but he is talking of the brilliant, flawed, ordinary, extraordinary, living, local church in Ephesus or in Lancaster or wherever. It is the local church, a gathered group of Christians, who Paul calls God's household here on earth, who are to hold out the salvation plan of God to the world. This is where God's order, God's stewardship is to be seen in present history. But of course, that role comes with a particular challenge for the church, doesn't it? If the local church is to provide a glimpse of God's order, then the church will have to live in a way that is in keeping with God's order. They will have to know how to, verse 14, conduct themselves in God's household. And so verse 14 is the reason Paul is writing. Their conduct is part of the way God's salvation plan will be displayed to the world, and so the mission of God achieved. Okay, we've covered a lot of ground, so let me sum up what we've seen so far. God has a salvation plan for all people, people who need saving. He's chosen to make that salvation plan known through the local church, whose rightly ordered lives hold out to the world a taste of what the world will be like when everyone bows the knee to Jesus and the whole world becomes God's home. It turns out then that that question, how are things going at Morelands, really matters, doesn't it? God has placed an enormous weight of responsibility on the ordinary local church. See, if you're renovating a home, you might go down to the carpet shop and bring home a carpet sample. 
You might put it against the floor or the wall or wherever you're going to put your carpet. Well, I guess we don't put carpets on walls, do we? But you get the kind of idea. And the sample is a picture of what the whole floor is going to look like when it's finished. Well, we are the carpet sample for the world's house renovation. We are the show home of the grand estate that God is building through creation. We are to model, therefore, in the way we do things, in the way we live, in the way we conduct ourselves, the order that God wants for the whole world, so that when someone walks through those doors and get to know us and see the way we do things and see the way we live, not just on Sundays but through the week, they can get a, a little glimpse, obviously an imperfect glimpse, but a little glimpse of God's plan, what it means to live with Christ as Lord. And so how are things going at Morelands? That is quite an important question, isn't it? Especially when we understand now the second thing, that not only is God's plan going out into the world, but at the very same time, people are trying to wreck the plan. So we come to the second point, God's work, and how some try to wreck it. Look with me at verse 3, where Paul gets straight down to business. He says, as I urge you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. Having thought about the overall message of the letter, we should now be able to see the seriousness of this presenting issue. Paul says there are certain people who are working to wreck the work of God. And Timothy's first priority must be to deal with them. How are they wrecking it? Well, very simply, verse 3, by teaching false doctrines, literally different doctrines. That is, they are teaching something that is different to what Paul has taught them. What he calls in verse 11, the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. It's important to notice that the threat comes from inside the church. When Paul left the Ephesians five years before this, in Acts 20, he gathered the elders on the beach at Miletus and he said this to them. It's on the screen from Acts 20. He said, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Now, what do you think of when you read that phrase, savage wolves? Well, quite a few years ago, when I was preparing to do an all-age talk, I think it was on Jesus, the good shepherd from, Luke, uh, from John chapter 10, where Jesus mentions wolves, I hired a full-size wolf costume. Just occasionally, when I'm doing all-age talks, I'll really go to town. And I hired a full-size wolf costume. There just happened to be one available at the local theatre hire company. And I took it into our bedroom, and I thought I'd just try it on for size, full size, fur, full size head. Looked in the mirror, the head was truly terrifying. It was Red Riding Hood's worst nightmare. <laughs> Massive fangs, dripping with fake blood, and this kind of horrible tongue kind of lolling out the side of the mouth. And I put it on, and I went to show my wife, Emma. Unfortunately, there on the landing was my three-year-old daughter, Chloe, 
who didn't know anything about the costume. I was keeping it as a surprise. She took one look, screamed in terror, and literally flew down the stairs, lying on a, in a quivering heap on the floor. Well, I ran after saying, Chloe, Chloe, it's me, it's me, it's me, don't worry. But all she could see was this wolf thundering after her, shouting, and it actually, she was actually quite traumatized. But unfortunately, these walls do not look like walls. What do they look like? Well, look at verse 7. They look like me. They look like Nathan. They are Bible teachers. And that's why Paul says, be on your guard, because they are not easy to spot. So what clues do we have so that we can spot such people? Because false teachers, sadly for us, do not have fangs dripping with blood. They don't go around in t-shirts with the word dodgy on the front. They look nice, like me and Nathan. So how do you spot them? Well, notice three things Paul says about them. Firstly, their content, or it might be better to say the character of their teaching. First of all, Paul says they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, as is always the case, normally the case with, with false teaching in the New Testament, you can't quite know what they're teaching. But genealogies in verse 4, and then the mention of the Old Testament law in verse 7, suggest that these people were basing their teaching on the Bible in some way. In fact, they probably prided themselves on their great Bible knowledge and understanding. And it's a great reminder to us, isn't it, that just because someone can stand in a pulpit and open a Bible does not mean that what you're hearing is biblical, if I can put it that way. It must conform, verse 11, to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel. In other words, there is a, there is a heart to the Bible that is the benchmark for Bible teaching. And it is possible, very possible, very easy, to open a Bible, to stand in the pulpit, to stand up and preach, and what you are teaching is not actually biblical, not conforming to the glorious gospel. And that is why, by the way, we always say, open your Bible. Do have your Bible open so that you can see and check that what the preacher is saying is what the Bible is saying. Well, if we press this a little further, I think it's almost certainly the case that they were somehow teaching the Old Testament law in a way that was opposed to the gospel. The right purpose of the law, as we'll see next week in 8 to 11, is to reveal sin, which paves the way for the message of the gospel. But it seems that they were teaching the Old Testament in law in a way that kind of took people back to the law as a kind of legalistic religion. And history tells you that that will always happen. If you leave the gospel of salvation, where else do you end up but in religion and works righteousness and that horrid cycle of graceless guilt and pride and failure and despair. Secondly, notice the trajectory or journey of the false teachers themselves. You see, it ought to shock us, oughtn't it, that there were such people in the church in Ephesus at all. Paul himself had spent over two years teaching there. As he puts it in Acts 20, the whole counsel of God, warning each of you day and night with tears. This was a well-taught church. Five years later and they're being beset by false teaching. How is it possible 
that these people who Paul has taught so well have now been threatened by this false teaching. Well, it's a very subtle trajectory. Have a look at verse 6. He says, some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. What have they wandered away from? Well, they've wandered away from the gospel, but not in the first instance. Have a look at verse 5. It says, the goal of this command to silence the false teachers is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these. Now, this is where we need to pay careful attention because Paul's language is, is a little bit dense here, but have a look at it. The things that Paul mentions in verse 5 are the fruit of the gospel. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. These are things that come out of believing the gospel. And Paul says, the false teachers have wandered away from these. They haven't in the first instance rejected the gospel. They've wandered away from the fruit of the gospel. In other words, false teaching is in the first instance very often a heart issue before it's a head issue. See, no one wakes up in the morning and says to themselves, I no longer believe Jesus rose from the dead. I'm going to turn away from a different gospel. I'm going to become a false teacher. Where's my wolf costume? No one does that. But someone might one day decide to turn away from their conscience. They might one day decide to give a little bit of leeway to sin. They might decide to silence that internal antenna between right and wrong, maybe in a very small matter. And then another time in a bigger matter, maybe a matter of sexual immorality or financial impropriety or greed or unkindness, or something like that. A sinful desire is then allowed to take over the heart. A temptation is given into. The good conscience is stifled. And how do you live with yourself in that situation? Well, you invent a new gospel. You reverse engineer the truth to fit with your chosen lifestyle. You see it again and again in churches. This is how it goes. Belief and behavior go hand in hand, but it often starts with behavior that then changes belief. I remember speaking to one of our small group leaders many, many years ago who was struggling with a particular sexual sin. And I could see the struggle going on in his heart and I was trying to help him with it. But eventually he gave in to that sexual sin, adopted a whole sort of lifestyle of that particular sexual sin. And sure enough, a matter of months later, he came and told me actually he didn't any longer believe this gospel or what the Bible taught. You see how his behavior had led him to change his belief, not the other way around. And I think this is what is going on here. And what that means is that if you want to maintain the truth, you have to maintain life at the same time. If you want to believe doctrine, you have to live the truth as well. The battle for doctrinal orthodoxy begins in the heart, not in the head. If you want to battle for the truth in your church, your family, your household, your small group, your Sunday school, it begins with the heart of the teachers. 
And therefore, this brings it much closer to home, doesn't it? See, when we talk about false teachers, it's tempting, isn't it, for me to, you know, criticize the American TV evangelists with their shiny suits or the dodgy Bible school down the road. But actually, this is a battle for every one of us. It's a battle for me. It's a battle for the parents teaching their children, for the grub group teacher or small group teacher. Does your life conform to what you are teaching them? Or are you losing the battle in your heart? That's what Paul is going to mean when he says to Timothy at times, fight the good fight, begins in the heart. Belief and battle are always intertwined. And so if you just flip over to 4.16, you'll see him put it there in the strongest possible terms that Timothy must watch his life and doctrine. And notice which order he puts it in. Well, finally, what are the consequences of the false teaching? What damage do they do? Well, it's easy to spot. Verse 4, controversies, division, meaningless talk. And just flip over to chapter 6, because he sort of bookends the book with this business of false teaching. Chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone teaches false doctrines, that's different doctrines again, and does not agree with the sound instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching... He is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, and malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Again, we can't kind of pin down the content of the teaching, but it's obviously very impressive in its teaching about all sorts of complex details about passages of the Old Testament. But Paul, back in our chapter, he just brushes it away. Brutal frankness, verse 7. Look at what he says. They don't know what they're talking about. Verse 6, empty talk. It's like a car revving its engine at full throttle. All the smoke and exhaust is billowing out. But it's not in gear. There's no traction. There's no power. Empty talk. And what does this actually do for the church? Well, here's where the rubber hits the road for Paul and for us. That false teaching, all that hot air, all that controversy, what does it do for the church? It turns the church inward. I heard a pastor talking recently about turning up to work in a new church. And he said, apart from all the power plays and all the factions and the whinging going on, And he said, there's nothing about this church I didn't want to change. He said, the most shocking thing was that not one person could remember anyone becoming a Christian in the last 20 years. And of course, those two things go hand in hand, don't they? A church turned in on itself with controversies and factions. and, And the result is people not being saved. False teaching. However subtle it is, distracts from the main game of salvation. It turns the church inwards and towards death. But a concern for the gospel, for the truth, for teaching that conforms to the glorious gospel, this is what unites a church. This is what turns a church inside out as they share God's desire for salvation. And this is why you'll notice in verse 5, 
that while silencing the false teachers is going to be a hard thing for Timothy to do, it is the most loving thing he can do too. The goal of this command to silence the false teachers is love. Love for the truth, love for the church, love for the lost, and above all, love for God and his good order. Well, let me offer, as we conclude, three implications for us this morning to go away and reflect on. I hope uh, this is the beginning, as Gareth and Laura helpfully showed us. We can continue to talk about these things in groups, over coffee, over lunch, and throughout the week. So three things uh, to get us going. First is the implication for church leaders. Paul is setting out for Timothy how he is to lead the church. And the overriding emphasis is teaching. You'll see it right through the book, 4.11, command and teach these things. 6.11, these are the things you are to teach and urge on them. Seven times, in fact, through the letter, Paul underlines that the teaching of the Bible is to be the bread and butter of Timothy's ministry. This is what the church needs if it's to grow and thrive. The church leader must, as Paul puts it in, in chapter 3, be able to teach. That is the major qualification for a church leader. And they must be prepared to get on and do it, do the hard work, labor and strive, as he puts it. Well, we'll see more as we go on through the letter what that teaching actually involves. But from this opening section, I want us to notice this, and it's very important, that teaching includes teaching against falsehood. That's the thing. It includes teaching the negatives as well as the positives. It includes calling out falsehoods and shibboleths and distractions for what they are. It actually, dare I say it, includes being critical of other people's views. And nobody likes this, do they? Of course, our culture doesn't like it, the idea that someone could stand up in a pulpit or in a Bible study group and actually criticize somebody else. It sounds so arrogant and narrow-minded and intolerant. It goes against everything our culture stands for, although maybe less so in our days of council culture where everyone's criticizing each other. But, you know, I find that even Christians don't like this. Of course we don't. It seems so negative, doesn't it, to criticize other people's views. Why can't we just teach the positives? Why can't we just affirm the truth? Well, what happens when you teach only the positives? You leave people at the mercy of the wolves, and wolves have no mercy. And this is why Paul says the goal of this command, that Paul Timothy should silence the false teachers, is love. How do you silence the false teachers? You teach why and how they are wrong. And so if you find yourself in a position of leadership within a church, or if you are perhaps somebody who is aspiring to leadership, or perhaps you are a grub group teacher already, or a growth group teacher, or a real food teacher, or you're teaching your own household, please know that that teaching responsibility includes the responsibility to teach the negatives, to teach error as well as the truth. The godly church leader must have the guts, the love, to refute falsehood and to protect from wolves. That's the first implication this morning. The second implication is for the whole church, for every member individually and 
for the church as a whole. And it's to make sure that we share God's loving desire for the salvation of the world. Remember, right at the center of this letter, the pivot is that very clear purpose statement in 3.14 to 16. It reminds us of the stunning reality at the heart of the universe, which is the salvation plan of God, which has been fulfilled in Jesus and is now coming out to the nations. That salvation plan that is going to bring God's order to the whole world. And amazingly, and humblingly, and shockingly, it's being revealed now in the ordinary local church. You won't see it on your TV screen. You won't see this in your newspaper. You won't hear it from your teacher at school, unless you're very lucky. But here it is, in the ordinary local church, the carpet sample for God's house renovation. So long as each member of the church, each household of the household of God, is listening to the truth and conforming our lives to it. This is why Paul writes. He writes because he wants this church, now caught up in fascinating, futile distractions, he wants this church, now divided by myths and genealogies and little fussy quarrels, to turn their eyes outward to the world out there, the world who are dying to hear God's saving message in Jesus Christ. So they might give a little glimpse of God's stewardship, his salvation plan. And I think that's a great message for us to hear at the beginning of a new year. New year, new term. One or two of us may well have forgotten that this is what it's all about. We may have come to think of the church as to do with us and our preferences. But here's a reminder that this is not about us. We are the example to the world of God's salvation plan. And therefore, we better take seriously God's words. We better make sure we order ourselves rightly, no matter how countercultural that is. And we better make sure that we join God on his mission and look outwards to those who do not yet know God's salvation. Our heart's desire, every one of us in this church, should be that every single one of these pews, and did you know the official number of people this church seats, uh, when, it, when these galleries were put up in the 1860s, 700 people. We've got plenty of space. Maybe they were thinner in those days, I don't know. <laughs> but 700 people. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see every single seat filled? That is our mission. That is our hope. And then, as we take God's word seriously, as we look outwards, we will be, I pray, a church tingling and vibrating with the wonder of God's gospel. This should be a place where it's impossible for the outsider to come in and say, there is nothing important happening there. Which brings us to the third implication, which is for you. If you are someone who cannot share what Paul says about himself in chapter 1, 14 and 15, that he is, verse 15, the worst of sinners in desperate need of salvation, but, verse 14, the grace of God was poured out on him abundantly. And I wonder if there is anyone here this morning who has felt in their heart of hearts the tragic disorder of a world ruined by sin. If you're conscious how far you fall short of God's standard, 
If you've ever wondered what it means to have a solid hope, then let me invite you this morning to hear the message that God's desire is for you to be saved. That you depend on Jesus and his grace, not your own works. That you allow God to lift you up so that on the last day you will stand before him and enter his eternal home. And so can I invite you again to hear that trustworthy saying in 1 verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if he could save Paul, he can save you. Come into God's church for all our flaws. Listen to God's word. Come and find salvation in Christ. So, back to that question. How are things going at Moorlands? Well, how would you answer it now? I'd say it depends on three things being true. Leaders who faithfully teach the truth and refute error. A church family tingling and vibrating with the wonder of its own gospel, rightly ordered, looking outwards. And thirdly, outsiders coming in and being saved. Well, that's the church I want to belong to. That's the church I believe God wants us to be. That's why the letter of 1 Timothy has been written. So let's pray now that that might be so. Heavenly Father, we thank you <clears throat> that in your great kindness and grace, you have chosen to save all who put their trust in Jesus. Thank you that your salvation plan is to be seen in and proclaimed from the rightly ordered church, whose leaders faithfully teach the truth and boldly refute error, and whose members share your loving desire for all to be saved. Please, in your mercy and for Jesus' sake, may this be such a church. Amen.